I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 75. Today in the show, we're joined by Brett Joy, an avid bow hunter from New Hampshire, and we're talking about big woods hunting and traveling to bow hunt. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And we've got a pretty darn exciting episode for you today, if I do say so myself, as I've got some stories for you from my early season hunts, and we've got a great guest. As joining us today is Brett Joy, an avid deer hunter from New Hampshire, who's going to chat with us a little bit about hunting mature bucks in the Northeast, and is going to share some of his experiences and lessons learned from traveling to hunt whitetails too. But before we chat with Brett, me and Dan do have some catching up to do. So uh, how's it going, man? You know, Mark, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I got water or I got air in my water lines at home. Uh, What does that mean? How did that happen? I don't know. Uh, They did some repair on the pump to my house and uh, I have a well. This has nothing to do with whitetails. No, it doesn't. But no. I'm, I'm just little, letting you know that it right now that's causing a little stress in my in my life. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay? I'm sorry to hear that. Is there a solution on the way? Uh yeah, I just got to let them bleed out over time. Gotcha. So <laughs> so can you drink water? Is there any water coming out at all or are you just having oh, a yeah, of gaps in yeah. it? Oh yeah. It just shakes the whole house when the air comes through the lines. So it's just like <laughs> and then spits spits water spits water and then they flush the toilet and then it just like shakes the whole toilet it's pretty cool <laughs> wow it sounds like an amusement park in your house <laughs> yep but let's talk about deer instead yeah because that's that's what calms me down yeah and that is what this whole darn podcast is about i guess so that and whiskey that and whiskey yeah so whitetails i don't know you had a couple hunts already since we talked last anything exciting worth mentioning from those I'll tell you what, I'll just break it down real quick because I, I know we want to get to your story. But um, both properties that I hunted this weekend were the ones that I gained access to this summer that were closer to my house. 
All right. So one, I did a real quick speed scout mission like the day after I gained access to it. And the other one I gained access to last week. So at that, well, two weeks ago. So I didn't scout it at all. So it was basically a run and gun right off the bat. And uh, the very first night I, I went in there, got set up. And as I'm as I'm sitting in or hanging up my stand, I look down and I notice huge rubs just all up and down this one little ridge line. I'm just like, oh my God, this could just be one of those nights where you hang early season and something comes in. I just had that that really good optimistic feeling I was going to yeah. see something. Exciting. Yeah, I didn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to have that little bit of excitement, at least thinking you might. Right. And aside from the next story that I'm going to tell you, the rest of this, the rest of the weekend was just kind of a bust. Um, Saturday morning, I heard a gunshot and I was like, man, what the heck is going on? There's no open deer season. And then I heard another one and another one, and another one. Like, I'm not joking. Like it, what sounded like a thousand gunshots. And Jeez. It, I, my property is near a public hunting area that has a lot of water on it. So it's duck uh, season yeah. opened up and Man, I don't know what they're shooting for ducks, but it sounds like artillery fire. <laughs> yeah, I've had that before hunting near uh, near a little pond or something. They light yeah. them up pretty good, don't they? Oh, that's nuts. Well, then I ended up a doe and a a mature, really big mature doe came through, and she came right into my shooting lane. I drew back on her, and. Right as I'm getting ready to squeeze the trigger, something brushes my cheek, and I it makes me flinch. You know, even just a little touch can make you like tense up and flinch. And I I close my eyes. Yeah. And my finger squeezed the trigger. Oh no. And I heard it, that my arrow hit something, and by the time I opened my eyes, the doe had spun around, and was. Basically, I just saw her tail over the hill, and then she started snorting at the bottom of the hill. So I'm thinking, you know, nothing happened. I, I missed her clean. Well, a couple minutes later, I get down to my stand. I'm getting ready to pack up. I go to grab my arrow. There's fat, hair, oh, and a, a little bit of meat on, on the arrow. No, Not a lot of, not, like hardly any blood, though. So I'm like, oh my God, I must have gut shot her or I hit her in the brisket or I hit her in the back strap. And I was just like, my my heart just sank, you know, how that happens. Oh yeah. So then I'm just like, well, I gotta, you know, I gotta start looking for it to see how much. And then I finally found some blood, found a little bit more, but it was nothing that would indicate I put a good shot on this deer. Right. Yeah. So long story short, for the next three hours. I started, I, I tracked blood as I found it. So it was like a couple drips, it would jump a log, there'd be a little bit more. And then it, I would have to like basically walk back and forth down different trails to try to find it. I'd find it three hours, okay? And in that three hours, I jumped the doe two times. And the second time I jumped it, uh, I was just like, she's, she's going to be fine. And then I, I kept following for a little bit more, and then the blood just stopped. 
Man, that's a bummer. Yeah, and I'm not – it was probably a total – and when I mean drips of blood, the biggest drop of blood was probably the size of my finger. Yeah. Finger tip. So it sucks that I had to start my season off like that. Yeah, that is uh... – that's what we all dread. That's for sure. Right. And it was like, cause last year at the beginning of the year, I shot at doe and I was on point. I was no, you know, nothing happened there. I, I just didn't kill the deer. I didn't put the arrow where it needed to go this year. Yeah. I'm not trying to make excuses, but that just sucks that it, it turned out that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure does. Well, man, I, <laughs> If there's anything we can take away, I think, from the beginning of this episode between your story and mine upcoming, it's that uh, your hosts of the Wired Hunt podcast here are very imperfect hunters. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We are. This never, never can be perfect. You know what no. I mean? No, never. But it's it's a roller coaster because you're on the opposite end. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes and no. I definitely felt both ends of it. Um, so do you want to get to that or is there anything more we need to hear about from your couple days? No, man. I'm just looking forward to this weekend. Um, going to try to do some annual patterning type stuff from previous year's trail camera pictures and uh, experiences. And I'm going to hop into a couple areas this weekend where I, I've had encounters with mature deer this time of year from previous seasons. Excellent. That's exciting. Yep. Going to see if uh, the annual pattern occurs again, huh? That's right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to hear about that next week. No Show Jones showed up October 7th on the same exact wind that we're going to be having on Friday night. Or no, this, and so like he showed up on October 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th. And I'll be hunting um, in on my main farm. So who knows? Will you do me a favor? What's that? Um, before we get on the show next week, um, mm-hmm. if I don't forget, well, if I forget to tell you again, just want to make sure you know this now. Can you just make sure to kill No Show Jones? Would okay, you do I, that, please? I, I promise. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm glad we're on the same page. That's right. Well, speaking of killing things, you wanna you wanna hear the story? No, Mark, I don't. All right. Well, then let's just get Brett on the line here. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Let's go. I want to hear it. I didn't. I didn't text you. I didn't ask you. You know, I didn't call you up because I knew we had to talk about it now. Yep, so yep. let's hear it. Spill the beans. All right, well, so, you know, we talked last week about how I'd seen these bucks on my food plot last Monday and how I was really excited for opening night because I had really good conditions to hunt that food plot again. Um, We had that cold front that dropped temperatures, you know, 20 degrees. We had high pressure. We had a moon that was going to be overhead towards the end of the daylight period there towards dusk. So all these things that we talked about over the last, you know, six months or so were lining up for that first night to be really good. So... I headed into that food plot that um, that I'd seen the bucks in before, and um, this was a mixture of Whitetail Institute wintergreens, which are some brassicas and turnips and stuff, and oats, and I planted this kind of food plot system that we, I don't know if we've talked about it before on the podcast. I'll, I'll really briefly describe it, but basically it's, it's kind of if you imagine a quarter piece of pie, um, and then break that piece up into three sections. You've got the section down at the pointy end of the pie, and then you've got two other sections at the wide end of the pie. Um, and those three sections are broken up by tall, brushy grass. 
Um, the total size of this system of food plots is probably two acres, two, yeah, somewhere around probably two acres. Um, that over the past couple of years, I've slowly been making it bigger and, and adding these kind of strips of cover in the middle. And at times I've had uh, food plot screens planted around the outside of it to give some added cover. Well, long story short, it's, it's secluded. I've got some really good food in here, and this food plot is tucked in right next to a major bedding area that's actually on my neighbor's property. So I can't hunt in that cover, but the best I could do and, and why I put this food plot system here was that I needed to draw deer out of this cover because for the first couple of years I hunted this property, I would always I could see these deer on the neighbors, but they would never come onto my side. They had no reason to move to this, this side of my property. Um, so I thought, hey, if I can draw them into an area where they'll feel safe during daylight, but I can draw them out of that really thick cover, I might have some success. And so I've been able to do that. So long story short, I head in there. I get set up in the tree. Immediately as soon as I'm sitting in my tree stand, I can see another food plot I have about four or 500 yards away down this power line. And I see like five does already feeding out there at like 4 o'clock. So right away I was like, okay, this is looking good. Um, fast forward maybe an hour and a half or two hours, I spot a couple bucks back on this thick neighboring property in this tall bedding cover. There's two bucks sparring. One of them's a pretty decent eight-pointer, um, so I'm excited. I'm seeing that. Now they walk off from the timber. Half an hour later, I see another buck, a nice eight-pointer. And this is a buck that I had been, I thought this is a buck that I've been getting pictures of during the summer. Um, and he was a potential shooter, so I was excited about that. He goes in this timber, kind of heading towards me, sort of, a parallel. Um, so I'm watching those bucks, hoping that these deer are going to come my way. Now it's getting to maybe 6.30 in the evening, maybe, and um, a couple does feed into the plot. So I'm watching these does in front of me, and they start looking behind me. You know what that usually means. I kind of slowly turn my head, and behind me is a little buck. But it's one of those little bucks that was with one of the bigger bucks back in the bedding cover. So immediately I was like, okay, if he's here, I bet you one of those bigger deer is on the way too. And then right as I think that in my head, I'm thinking, oh, they must be on their way. I look down beneath me, and boom, there's a buck right underneath my tree stand. And this was, I don't know if you remember that day Thursday or how that was in Iowa, but it was really, really windy here. 15 to 17 miles an hour maybe. So it was really gusty. I couldn't hear anything. So here's this buck right underneath my tree stand. And I just remember thinking, okay, I saw pretty nice eight-point rack. And then, you know, as we've talked about, my goal in Michigan this year was to kill a three-year-old buck with my bow. Uh, I wasn't too terribly interested in trying to shoot some giant racked buck. I was really looking for a three-year-old buck because that was the top 10% buck for this property I have there. Um, so for me, the first thing I looked at, I looked at his neck, I looked at his shoulders, I looked at his belly, and I said, okay, is this a three-year-old or older? And I said, yeah, right away. So he's underneath my stand. I have to spin around to grab my bow and then spin back around, get my bow over my harness, and turned around towards where this deer was headed with you know, like five or six deer already coming in the food plot. So there's those two does feeding. Then there was that little buck I saw. Then there's the big eight. And as I'm trying to get my bow around, two more bucks come in, a little six-pointer, and then that other decent eight-pointer I saw back in the bedding. So all these deer all of a sudden piled in there. Long story short, and I'll probably say that like six more times. That's <laughs> I always say long story short, and the short just gets or the, the story just gets longer. But <laughs> this buck, I you know I determined he's a shooter. He's walking straight away from me and pretty quickly moving away into the food plot. And I'm thinking in my head, man, I want to get a shot at him within 30 yards. Ideally, um, I'm running out of chances. I'm running opportunities. So he's moving fast. 
I had ranged different spots in the food plot earlier that day, so I knew he was around that 30-yard mark at this point. So I was like, all right, I got, I got to get a shot now. So I bleated to stop him. I was drawn back, and like I said, I said 30 yards in my head. And then as my arrow or as my pins come down onto his body, my 20-yard pin gets on him, and I released. And I don't know why, but I released. And uh, I, I, I uh, explained it in my blog post as a miscommunication between my head and my trigger finger because I just pulled the trigger, you know, preseason jitters, I guess, or just trigger happy or something. I pulled the trigger, and that arrow dove right underneath his belly and into the dirt. And they all went taken off, and I was really pissed. I was really, 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 really mad. I mean, um, you know how my elk season ended, so you knew about that. And now this, and I was just sitting here like, you are the dumbest son of a gun ever. Yeah. You get an opportunity like this. Everything came come to get, came together the way you want it to, and then you blew it like that. I mean, I was just sitting there kicking myself hard. Um, so I watched the footage, checked the arrow, everything confirmed. Yeah, I missed him clean. Um, so I was glad at least I missed him clean and didn't get a bad shot on him. Um, but while I was sitting there kicking myself, in comes a couple little bucks and they start sparring and playing around and then here's some more does coming in there. I'm like, holy smokes, maybe some deer are going to pile back in here. And I had like 45 minutes of daylight left still. Um, and as I'm sitting there kind of thinking, Hey, maybe there's a chance. All of a sudden I see a wide rack come out of the standing corn that was adjacent to my food plot. And instantly I knew it was this buck that I'd been seeing this summer that we called Turd Ferguson. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, that's not my name. <laughs> you, see what I, you see what I did there? You see, see what, what I did there? there? <laughs> so, so this buck, instantly, I see him. And he's a buck um, that, based on the summer pictures of him, based on you know, looking at his body in the summer, I said, okay, I'm pretty sure this is a buck. This is a three-and-a-half-year-old buck. But, you know, summer pictures are notoriously kind of difficult to really judge a deer on because – a lot of the body characteristics that most, um, you know, most experienced people when they're trying to judge deer's age, those body characteristics aren't necessarily fully developed till into the later in the fall. So it's tough in the summer. They can kind of be misleading. But the summer pictures had told me, hey, I think this is a three-and-a-half-year-old deer. So as soon as I saw him pop out of the corn, I didn't even think about it at all. I didn't think about am I shooting him or not, is he three or not. I just said I'm shooting him instantly and I think part of that was just you know I just had missed this buck and like I saw whoa redemption opportunity I have to make this work um so he comes in into the food plot bunch of deer again in the food plot and um he's like 60 yards and then 50 yards and then 40 yards and in my head I'm like I don't want to rush this shot I don't want to take a long shot because I just missed one so I'm just gonna wait I'm gonna wait and see how close he'll come and so I waited what seemed like forever um it might have been 10 minutes but it seemed like a really long time and the whole time I'm just like just trying to keep cool wait for him to get closer but then some does behind me start getting a little edgy um they kind of jumped off and spooky. And so at this point he's looking up and I got worried. Okay. He's now going to get spooky. And he starts heading off towards the edge back towards the cover. And he's heading towards where my shooting lane ends. So it got, kind of got to the point. Where I'm like, all right, it's, it's now or never ranges to begin. He was like at 37 and then he came a little closer into like 36. And so I decided, Hey, I gotta get this. I gotta take this shot. So drew back, got the correct pin on him and, uh, and let her go. And this time, Got a pretty decent hit. Hit him just where I wanted him, up and down, a couple inches farther back. Um, but he went tearing off, jumped across this creek, and within probably 50, 60 yards from where I hit him, he bedded down, 
and then not long after that, I saw his antlers tip over. He kicked a couple times, and uh, and that was all she wrote. And I killed an opening night Michigan buck. Nice, my man. Yeah, yeah. On the board. On the board. I was uh, I was excited. Um, it was cool. You know, he was a buck I'd watched this summer, and uh, you know, like I said, believed him to be three and a half. I'm st- I'm not 100 percent sure if he was after watching the footage again and and looking at him kind of up in the air on it now he might have been just a two and a half year old um you know i never got fall pictures to look at until after i killed him um at times he looks like a two and a half year old at times he looks like a three and a half year old i don't know um so a little bit slight to be completely honest a little bit you know like after after everything a little bit i don't want to say i'm disappointed but just a little bit like eh, i wonder if i should have held off on this deer uh but you know at this point there's no you know so you're saying there's matter. a potential that he could be a two-year-old. There's potentially he could be a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, so last year, and I haven't had a chance to look at it, but did you post pictures of him from last year? No. I, I This is a buck I have not seen in past years. Okay, so it's Turd Ferguson, though, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely you, Turd Ferguson. He was a buck that just, just showed up. him this year, right? Yeah, he. this is the first year okay. he showed up. Yep. Um. So, so, you know, I'm not 100% sure on that, but – um. You know, there's no point in complaining about that or worrying about that now because he is dead. And uh, he's a beautiful deer, and I'm proud of him. So I'm Meat excited. in the freezer. Meat in the freezer, yeah. So that is my story. That's uh, that's how the opening night hunt went down. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we've talked about this past year that I put into action on this hunt that uh, that I was pretty excited about to see it all come together the way that I hoped it would and the way that I planned it would. Um so no complaints here. Just very thankful that I uh, was able to get the job done. I tell you, I think it's going to make the, that you have one buck under your belt already, one deer, any deer under your belt, makes the season. It's like you knocked that rust off, and now you're just more comfortable with your shot. Yeah, absolutely. It feels good to have one have one down, and um, and now I'm going to be focused on Iowa and Ohio for for a buck. And then on this uh, this Michigan property, I'm just going to be trying to manage the doe population. As we've talked about, I've got a lot of does here. So now I can just hunt does and not stress about, you know, spooking bucks, not stress about that. I'm just going to focus on managing this herd a little bit better, getting it down more in balance with the habitat. And uh, I think that's going to be a really good thing. So it worked out really well. Awesome. Well, when are you coming to Iowa? Uh, first time I'll be in Iowa is probably going to be not this coming weekend, but the following weekend. I think I'm going to try to come up for a couple days and just scout a little bit, observe a little bit, put some more cameras out and just try to learn a few things more about the properties before I go for my big trip during the rut. Sounds good. So that's the plan. Well, good weekend. Good weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Very good weekend. Great start to the season. And uh, I'd say now, Dan, we have got to get our guest on the line because I think you and me and everyone can learn a thing or two from what Brett Joy has been doing. Yep, we're running a little behind. We are. All right, let's shut it down and give Brett a call. But before we call up Brett, we do need to take a moment for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear. And last week we heard from Sitka product category leader Dennis Zuck talking about how they developed the Fanatic jacket, which is one of my favorite pieces from Sitka. And this week, we're continuing that conversation as Dennis shares with us the basic premise and theory behind the entire line of Fanatic products, which now includes several jackets, gloves, hat, a hoodie, and more. Yeah, and and, you know, it's, you know, I use my glove sometimes as an example because that glove is is our lowest price point of product, but it's absolutely 
just nails what you would want in a glove if you're going to use a hand pouch and try to use a trigger release, right? So our Fanatic line, whether it's the Fanatic hoodie, the Fanatic light, you know, or the insulated Fanatic pieces, they're all about the person we built them for. And, you know, that guy, he's a he's a fanatical hunter. He spends a lot of time in the woods, but he's a archery guy more than likely, you know. So we're thinking about, you know, making sure that when, you know, the draw cycle and, you know, ease, range of motion and those kind of things when we build our Fanatic systems, um, typically that involves the front hand pocket. You know, uh, we think about the layering when I put something on or I take something off, am I still ready? You know, so our fanatic system is more about the mindset and the needs of that, that, that archery hunter that we believe, you know, we have a lot of the guys that really love our gear in that space. And, uh, we want to make sure they have every tool that they could possibly have. And our fanatic line brings them that. What is your favorite piece of the fanatic line? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think when I look at, when I look at collections, um, you know, you have stuff that fills a need and then you have things that change the way you hunt. And I absolutely, you know, as a guy who never wore a hood, as a guy who never did, you know, always worried about his face mask, um, you might know where I'm going, but my fanatic hoodie, and I say my, a sick is fanatic hoodie, but it's absolutely a piece. Now I feel, I feel exposed and I don't feel ready if I don't have it on anymore. I can't imagine leaving without it. And, you know, I think something that has that kind of a mental 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 tie into what you do you know we all do those little things with our bows or other things for me that piece does that well i couldn't agree more with dennis on his take regarding the fanatic hoodie because that's a piece that i have been and will be wearing for every single hunt in 2015 it really is just a piece that you always want on it's pretty neat so if you're interested in the fanatic hoodie or any other pieces from the fanatic line visit sickagear.com to learn more and now let's get brett on the line all right with us on the line now is brett joy welcome to the show brett thanks for having me mark i appreciate it yeah. glad to be here absolutely we're uh we're excited to have you on the episode. We already, I just shared some uh, some fun stories from the past week of my hunting season with Dan on the show, so uh, you've got a lot to live up to. We, we kicked off things on a high note, so uh, <laughs> don't let us down now. We want to show forward, Brett. Lots well, of pressure. No problem. Lots of pressure. <laughs> no, no, we're excited to have you on. Um, I first heard about what you've been doing in the deer hunting world, Brett, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago on the online show Midwest Whitetail. And I got to share kind of a cool story before yep. before I ask you anything about uh, your background, okay. which I will hear in a second. For those people listening, um, last year on October 15th, I was sitting editing a podcast or a article. I can't remember which. I was doing something. I was editing an article. And I came across a story from Brett Joy. I think it was either a story or it was his episode on Midwest Whitetail that week. And it was talking about a cold front that had hit in Ohio in the early season. And I'm watching this video, watching Brett talk about all this, and I start to think in my head, man, you know, that's exactly what's happening right now in Ohio. And I knew that was going on, but I just had I just had this plan in my head that I wasn't going to go to Ohio till later in the month. But just seeing this little trigger got me thinking maybe I should get back down there. And because of that, Brett, I did go down to Ohio that day, like literally after just watching your video, I was like, I'm getting out of here. I packed up my stuff and drove the five hours. And the next day mm-hmm. I shot the buck that I was after down there. So um, I have you to, to thank or to blame for the whole jawbreaker <laughs> story. 
Um, so that's a little oh. interesting background there. I thought you would, uh, I think I told you, but I don't know if anybody else knows that. So pretty crazy how things work out. Like yeah. That. You, you did tell me about that. It's a pretty neat story. And, uh, yeah, I remember that, uh, I kind cause I did the same thing. I was at a cold front and I said, I need to go now and need to be on the farm there and went out and filled a really nice buck. And then I, you had told me you'd done the same thing, but definitely, uh, something to be said for, Make a decision last minute going with your gut, especially when you get a cold front like that. Absolutely. It's, it's not always easy to, to get in the stand. You have other things planned. You have to kind of drop everything, especially for guys like us that have to drive a long ways to get to some of the places that we hunt. But you can definitely pay big dividends if you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so a couple of things we talked about right there are things that I want to dive in with you. You know, Specifically, some of the challenges that we deal with as traveling bow hunters. I know you do that a lot. So do I. Um, some yep. of the things about, you know, hunting tactics and keying in on those cold fronts and things like that. But before, before all of that, could you just give us a little bit of background into who you are and how you got into hunting these big mature bucks? Well, actually it's kind of funny. Obviously I grew up hunting in New England. I'm from New Hampshire. I lived here all my life and, um, nobody in my family really hunted, um, and so I honestly, I always loved to be outdoors. My dad's a big flyer fisherman. We actually used to um, race sled dogs with us, kind of Siberian Huskies. So I've always been outdoors, and my dad kind of, you know, taught me to appreciate and love the outdoors. But he was never in hunting, and I just, I guess, gained interest in it by kind of actually watching it on Sunday mornings on TV and just being outside. So a lot of the stuff that I did, was just self-taught and I kind of taught myself to hunt and did a lot of reading and a lot of research and started, uh, I probably started hunting when I was 10 or 12. I went with a couple of uh, family friends, but they weren't too serious about it. So really didn't have much of, you know, a role model, I guess, in the hunting world. So I basically figured out on my own and did a lot of reading. Um, and it was really tough to start. I mean, in New Hampshire, you're lucky if you, well, a lot of guys are lucky if they see a deer or two all year. So I'm kind of, was out in the cold with really no nowhere to like no idea of what I'm doing and on one of the toughest uh, toughest I guess playing fields you could say in the northeast here so I learned a lot of it on my own um, I haven't I guess killed a bunch of deer really because we just we don't have that many um, but I guess I killed enough to, and I got to a point where I decided that I kind of wanted to pursue mature deer and I think I did made that kind of conscious decision. I think it was in 2007. So I've really been doing it all that long, honestly. But uh, once I did, I kind of just dove into it head first, and that's all I've been um, doing ever since. So um, I just try to learn as much as I can and uh, just keep getting better and smarter and uh, try to experience more success. And obviously the video aspect came uh, into that along the way, and uh, my filming partner, Ross Roberge, and I do a lot of, I will film everything now for Midwest Whitetail and for Bill Linky. So that's kind of how I started, and it just kind of grown and grown and grown until until pretty, I guess, pretty much a lifestyle. So yeah, well, it seems like you're doing it right. Based on uh, some of the pictures I've seen, you've managed to harvest some some great bucks, um, whether it be in Ohio or New Hampshire, or different places. Um, so. We're excited to kind of pick your brain and figure out exactly how you're doing that because, like you mentioned a minute ago, the Northeast, especially in somewhere like New Hampshire, from what I gather, you know, I've never hunted there, but from what I hear, that is one of the toughest playing fields out there. So, you know, I recently 
saw an episode of Midwest Whitetail, I think it was earlier this year, where you talked about some of your tactics for hunting these kind of big woods, northeast-type habitats. And I also read an article on Field and Stream where they profiled some of your ideas, where you talked about how you're doing this at a, at a high level, I guess. Before we find out how you're having success in these types of areas, can you kind of just lay the explain the playing field for us? For those of us that aren't hunting an area like that, how is the Northeast different from a hunting standpoint compared to somewhere like Michigan or Iowa or, or Ohio where me and Dan are hunting? Well, I think the biggest thing is we have next to no agriculture and any agriculture that we do have is kind of an exception. So I'd say we're 90 to 95% forested or timbered. Um, so really every, there's no, you know, hunting bean fields or hunting a cornfield or anything like that. Everything um, that we're doing is directly related to hunting in the big timber. Um, so it, that's a challenge. Um, a lot of New England has a lot of topography as well. It's a really rugged country. Um, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, and also we just have a very, very low deer density um, relative to the Midwest or even the South or the West. So uh, it makes it a challenge to even find deer, never mind a good one. So um, I think those are the biggest things. The other thing is, is, it's, in my opinion, a good and a bad thing is that most of the land in New England is pretty much open to public access, um, especially in New Hampshire. We have a law that says if uh, land is not posted against hunting, you can hunt it or trespassing, you can hunt it. And that's commonly accepted, and I think a lot of the New England states, at least the ones I've hunted. So it's good because you have a lot of areas to hunt, a lot of spots, a lot of ground you can explore, but at the same time, so does everyone else. And so... There isn't that many uh, properties that, you know, are exclusive or um, highly managed or anything like that. So a lot of the properties are pretty much equal. So um, it really does create an equal playing field. I mean, I, we, my family and myself have a couple smaller properties that we manage. But, uh, you know, that's just, I mean, they're like 60 acres in size. So there's not much that, you know, we can do what we can on those. But these deer aren't obviously living on just 60 acres. They're living on thousands of acres around it. So we do have a little bit of an impact, but not as much as we'd like. So really it's just kind of at mercy of it's almost like public land, I guess you could say. So I think that's the, the biggest difference is just the, the landscape, um, uh, the deer density, and then that situation um, with, you know, open access land. Because of the open access, uh, are you yep. running into a lot of other hunters? Are, are there a lot of other bow hunters in New Hampshire? Um, yes and no. We have, I mean, there's just no, kind of funny. It really depends on where you're hunting. Some of the areas that I'm in are closer to towns, and I absolutely run into a bunch of hunters. Um, some of the areas are, are kind of, I'm talking like three, 4,000 acres of continuous timber were just unbroken. And if they get pressure, but they're not, it's not intense, intense pressure. We don't have like the numbers of hunters that Pennsylvania or Ohio or Michigan has or anything like that. But um, we're not a big state either. So, um, yeah, they're getting pressure. It depends, obviously, on where you are. Though. Some areas get far less pressure than others. Those are the areas, obviously, I like to focus on because that's where I find deer moving somewhat naturally. And in uh, some of the older deer, obviously, living in those areas, that get the least amount of hunting pressure and human intrusion. Gotcha. So in this type of scenario, I imagine if you plunked me down in the middle of New Hampshire – or somewhere up there, I think the toughest thing for me 
given how different you have explained the terrain is and from what I've heard, you know, I think that one of the most difficult things would be just figuring out, you know, where do you start? You know, how do you figure out where to start focusing your time and your scouting efforts when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of continuous timber? You know, how do you start? I guess that's my question. How do you start? <laughs> yeah. Um, if I'm looking to hunt a new area or, you know, look for a new spot, which I'm always trying to do because uh, nothing's constant in the hunting world or, you know, someone might or somebody might sell their land and there might be a housing development where I used to hunt or um, land could be posted, bought up. So it's always changing. So I, you always need to try to develop new spots and, and find new areas. Um, but I, I'm big on in, on the Internet and digital scouting, if you will, aerial photos and topo and all that type of thing. And I try to look for um, a few different things, especially in, in our area. I'm looking for um, different habitat types that are converging, um, a lot of edge habitat. Um, so, And I'm looking for bedding and, and food. And a lot of this stuff is pretty difficult to, to differentiate on, you know, an aerial photo or a topo map. But I'm... In my area specifically, I'm looking for bedding areas such as swamps, like cattail swamps or uh, early succession growth um, areas that have just been timbered, or really steep, rugged country or high country. We have a lot of mountains. Um, they're not really big mountains, but they're big enough to be considered mountains. So a lot of the bucks will bed up high on the side hills. Uh, so I'm looking for those type of areas. Then I'm looking for you know significant stands of hardwood forest. Um, red oaks are the most prevalent. Uh, hard mass producing species in our area uh, we do have some whites but obviously they're less um i guess reliable and we just don't have as many um so it's mostly red oak and we actually have a lot of apples we have a lot of old apple orchards and uh, a lot of just uh isolated pockets of trees and those can be really good as well um, some of that stuff you can identify on aerials and uh, topographical maps but some of it you guys have to go in and you know walk and, and see for yourself so I, I really just start with that stuff. I'm looking for those habitat types. And you can kind of see the difference on, like, Google Earth is the one I use um, the most, or Bing Maps. But you can kind of see those slight changes in forest types that goes from, like, maybe mature hardwoods to uh, stand a hemlocks or a swamp or anything like that. So you can kind of see that. When I look at that, I'm looking for areas that have usually two or more of these different habitat types or features um, in the same area. And then I'm looking for proximity to like access, um, proximity to a road or, or to an area that I am aware of that there's a lot of human traffic because those areas are probably going to get a lot of pressure. Um, there's a lot of really good areas, awesome habitat near me. But the problem is, is they're close to houses. Um, so we don't have many like secluded, like apple orchards, like way out in the timber. Um, a lot of these stuff are close to houses too. So, it's kind of a balancing act. You want to find the area of the best habitat, but at the same time, you want to be careful. You're not wasting a bunch of time uh, somewhere where a come opening gate is going to be a bunch of guys in the woods because um, you're just not going to do very well. Yeah. So, so you you know keep keep us going through this process. You've looked on Google Earth or Bing Bing Maps, and you found some of these different terrain features you're looking for. Or these different types of cover. What happens next? Are you, are you, is this all happening in the spring or the summer? And then, you know, what are you doing from that point once you find these things on your maps? Yeah, typically I start um, around shed seasons. So I like to start in, you know, February or March when I get a little more time. Um, 
and I'm not worried about bumping deer or anything like that. So I'll start, you know, over the winter, usually looking at that stuff. And then obviously the best time to do any type of scouting, in my opinion, is right after the season. Um, hopefully before we get a bunch of snow, so you can still see some of the sign on the ground. We do get significant snowfall in my area. So I like to try to catch it before that happens, or even just, you know, late later in the winter when it starts to melt. But then I'll go in once I identify a couple of areas and just walk them and People know pretty quick whether there's sign there or there's deer there, um, or at least um, if you have experience up here. One of the things that's a big challenge is we don't have a bunch of deer, so they don't lay down a bunch of sign, and there's not just, you know, overwhelmingly obvious sign in these areas that I'm going into. It's, a lot of times it's very subtle, but if there's no sign and it's, you're just not in a great area, you won't see anything. It'll look like a deer or a whitetail never existed within miles of the area, so you can kind of cross that off. Um, and obviously they'll change from year to year because, you know, I'll be looking at time from the previous year. Food sources change and stuff is always changing in the woods up here. So just because there's a sign, there's a lot of signs from last year and it looked like a great area, I'm still going to have to go in, you know, and run cameras and, and keep tabs on the area to make sure or to determine whether deer are doing the same things this year that I think that they were last year. So, so yeah, in the winter I'll, I'll start with, go ahead. I was going to ask, so what would qualify then as enough sign to make you interested? And then what specifically is that sign? So are we talking like rut sign, like some scrapes and rubs that you can see from last year? Or are you just saying, okay, I see a handful of tracks, that's enough? You know, what specifically will be good enough? Um, Really, any sign, to be honest with you, because really there is here at least so little. Um, so, yeah, if I see, you know, a trail that's visible, you know, after the season, in the woods, I like to have around here. You have to actually search for them, um, just because we just don't have a high deer density. So yeah, if I find a, a, a trail that's visible still, and you know, you, with tracks in it, I know that's probably an area of high traffic. Um, yeah, rubs and scrapes. Um, we have our trees, and because of our climate, have found they don't regenerate very fast. So we can see scrapes for like many years back, like three, four, five years sometimes. I'm sorry, not scrapes, rubs on trees. Um, I know in Ohio, a buck will make a rub on a tree the year before, and then it's completely healed up and grown over by the next year. And that always amazed me, amazed me going from New Hampshire to Ohio. But, you know, I was like, man, this, if, if you see a rub on a tree, you know it was made that year. Uh, that's not the case here. So we can kind of see if it's historically been an area where a buck has been using, um, which is nice. Um, but those are the types of things I'm looking for, really. Um, and the other thing is just the cover type to get in there and see, okay, yeah, these are big, mature red oaks. They looked like that on the map, but I wasn't sure. And, you know, they're probably going to be mass producers. Or just to go in there and, you know, an area might look like it was uh, timbered, you know, a few years back. But then you go in there and you're like, man, this cut's 15 years old. Everything's grown up, grown up and it's mid-succession and there's really not a lot of browser bedding for deer. And it's probably not going to be an area that's going to hold deer. So just trying to confirm what you uh, suspected looking at the aerial thing, going in and find any sign uh, whatsoever. And then obviously I'm going to look for tree stands and signs of other hunters in the area. Yeah. And if there's a lot of that, I'll probably write it off as well because that's kind of just a, not an area I want to spend a bunch of time in. So one of the things that I, as I'm thinking through this scenario, one of the challenges that I'm seeing, I'm assuming might be there, is you know if if you're if you're keying in on a lot of these habitat types like early successional cover, you know cutovers, things like that, that can be both feeding area and bedding area in some cases. And, you know, mm -hmm. same thing, like when you're hunting, you know, oak trees, there could be bedding right there near this little oak stand, and they're feeding and bedding kind of the same kind of place. How do you 
how do you deal with that? Or is that something you're actually dealing with? I guess is my assumption correct? And then how do you how do you figure out yeah. where the actual bedding is versus the actual feeding? How do you take advantage of that? Yeah, absolutely. That's probably one of the biggest challenges we face is that all these areas overlap. And what I try to do, and I don't know if everybody does this, but I try just to make generalizations about different habitat types and say, okay, this is a hardwood ridge. I'm going to figure that they're going to feed here. And maybe I found a cattail swamp. They're going to bed here. And then I try to, I guess, hunt it or set stands under that assumption. Now, it's not always correct. And yeah, sometimes I'm going to be set up for a certain wind going for what I assume to be the bedding to, you know, to me or away from the bedding. Um, and I'm going to be wrong. That deer is going to come in from the oaks and head towards the cattail swamp or towards the cut to feed. So, you know, it, that's a, a really big challenge. And a lot of the guys that hunt around here aren't too keen on playing the wind because of that because they're like, man, a deer come from anywhere. You know, how, what's the point of playing the wind? They could come from anywhere. And a lot of the times they do, but I would say um, more often probably than not, they're sticking to those uh, bed-to-feed patterns, I guess, that you can at least, at least have something to, to hunt to go on. You know, like, because if you're in... Like you said, it's kind of difficult if you're in this timber, in this you know 2,000 acre piece of timber, and you're trying to figure out what's what. Um, if you don't make an assumption or try to have a theory on where the bedding and feeding, then you don't really have anything, and you're just kind of sitting in the woods. So that's what I try to do: is figure, okay, he, this buck is bedding here and feeding here, and um, I'm, I'll, I'll, what I try to do is confirm that with trail cameras. They actually are doing that. Um, I'll set stands accordingly, but sometimes I'm wrong. A lot of times I am. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a very, very daunting task trying to figure out what's what because everything does overlap and it changes with the, with the time of year as well. Right so. there. <laughs> it never makes it easy for you. So you mentioned you're trying to confirm some of these things with your cameras. Can you walk us through exactly how you are using cameras? Yeah. Um, I'd say that the biggest Tools of my success is definitely trail cameras just because um, our deer are not visible at all. Um, as I told you before, we're 90 to 90% timber in the areas that I hunt, so we're never going to glass the field in the summer and see a velvet buck. I mean, we do occasionally. We do have some smaller, you know, a 10-acre hay fields, a real big one. Um, but a lot of times, the majority of our deer just aren't coming out to those fields during um, daylight, and the hay quality isn't great. It's not like, you know, great alfalfa or clover. It's hay that's been seeded 10 years ago and it's just hayed every year so it's not like it's really highly nutritious or a valuable food source but they do use them but um where was i going with that um let's see what was the question Sorry. yeah yeah it was uh you, off on a, how are you how you're using those trail cameras to, to start confirming okay, some of these assumptions right. you have yeah so what i typically do is i start running my trail cameras over the summer i usually set july 1st and start date um, and I'm running them in those areas that um, maybe I'm scouting for a new spot this year or the, the year um, that I want to hunt or areas that I've hunted for years in the past. Um, and they're pretty important to the way I hunt um, just because if you're targeting a specific buck, you have to know he's there. And um, if it weren't for trail cameras, we probably wouldn't know these deer here just because we're so heavily uh, timbered. Um, our deer is just not very visible. We can't go out and glass a bean field or an alfalfa field like you could in the Midwest, um, maybe the South or even out West. 
Um, so we're using these cameras to first find these deer, or find the deer are there, um, and then furthermore to confirm what we think they're doing. Um, I'm usually running them, uh, I try to run them on whatever food source I think they're using because uh, I don't expect them to be there during the day at all. Um, so I don't want to run cameras in any areas where I might bump these deer or they might run in or where they're not used to running into human, I guess, odor or intrusion, if you will. Um, so I'm going to try to run them off maybe one of these little hay fields that we have or maybe off a um, orchard, a working apple orchard or uh, or anywhere I can really access in those specific areas that have scouted out easily that I don't think I'm going to be bumping deer. Um, our deer are very, very nocturnal, I think more so than a lot of the other deer hunters around the country. Um, so I can kind of pretty much count on they're not going to be at that food source during the day. Um, and they may be very close, but I, I, you know, the way I do it is I try to go in low impact, which is the wind in my favor when I'm running these cameras. Um, obviously paying attention to scent and set them on these food sources. And I start that way in the summer and try to get pictures of them. And that's going to confirm that they're there and that they're feeding in that area. You know, if I don't get a picture of mature buckle, those move cameras. Um, but then sometimes I'll, what I'll do once the season gets closer, is I might just get a little closer to bedding with the camera if I think I can get away with it. And I'm really, really cautious when I do that. Um, and I'm trying to move them maybe into some of these transition areas between uh, their bedding areas and their feeding areas. So um, once I'm done that, I can get a pretty good idea if they are they're in fact doing what I suspect that they're doing and using the specific bedding or feeding area. Um, so that's kind of how I do it. Um, obviously there's exceptions to all that and that's not what I do every time, but that's kind of the plan going forward um, when I have a clean slate. So you've got, you've scouted these places, you've identified some key terrain features, you've confirmed things with your trail cameras. Now let's say it's hunting season, you know, uh, do you are you actually hunting these types of places differently in any way than how you might be hunting an area in Ohio with agriculture and timber mixed up, um, or is it is it basically the same thing once you determine where those potential food sources are, where those potential bedding areas? Make your assumptions. Um, you know what does that beginning of the season look like when you start actually going to hunt? Well, I always tell everybody it looks different, but the game's the same no matter where you're hunting whitetails. Um, they bed in one area and feed in another, and they could be bedding in a river bottom in Montana and, you know, traveling a half mile to get to alfalfa, or they could be bedding, you know, in, on a ridge in Iowa and going to a bean field, or they could be bedding in a cattail swamp and going to a stand of oak. So the game is the same. You're hunting these deer and bed to feed patterns in the early season, and most of the season up until the rut. So, yeah, I'm hunting the same way I would out there. I just might not be sitting on a food plot or a field edge or anything like that, it might be in thicker cover, less obvious, more subtle um, areas. And I'm, typically in early season, I'm trying to get get off the food source a little bit because, like I said, most of these deer aren't getting there till after shooting light. Um, so I just try to kind of walk it back, and I'm very cautious when I go in a little bit of time closer and closer to bedding. Um, but if a deer isn't, you know, moving close to daylight at all, I just won't hunt them. Uh, and I'll just sit back and wait. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned, kind of subtle 
subtleties you have to pay attention to differently now in, in the Northeast and trying like that versus some of these other places where things are a little more obvious. Um, one of the subtle features that I imagine you're paying attention to, and you mentioned earlier a little bit, was terrain and topography. Can you share with us a little bit about how you're seeing deer use specific topographic features in your area and, and how you are then taking advantage of that? Yeah, and, you know, it's we have a lot of varying terrain, so I kind of see a little bit of everything. We don't have any real real flat, you know, open ground like that or flat ground. But uh, I see some rolling topography, some bottomland stuff, um, and then obviously some mountain stuff. But um, I, really it's pretty similar to where you hunt anywhere else in the big timber. You're trying to pay attention to saddles and pinch points. Um, and a lot of people, and I do pay attention to topography a lot, but a lot of things, or a lot of, um, some of the features that people overlook, I think, are just changes in habitat type that uh, funnel deer movement or, or um, concentrate deer movement. Um, our deer love thick stuff to bed in and to live in, but they don't like to walk through it, so they're going to avoid it. Um, so some of these early succession cuts are great, um, great areas to funnel deer because they'll actually walk around the edge of the cut. And then maybe you have a pond or a swamp or a steep, steep bridge that comes right down to that cut, and then that's a great, great place to hunt, you know, if it's in close proximity to those, that feeding or bedding area. So I see a lot of that. Um, so water is a great thing to water swamps or any wet, wet um, ground is a great thing to funnel the, the deer activity. Um, topography, obviously, as well, like I said, points on ridges is a great um, just to catch a buck that's coming back to bed or cruising during the rut um, and any saddle or bench on a ridge too. Those are great. But those are, I, I'm really focused on those more towards the rut. Um, so really, I guess the topography or, or I guess habitat features that I'm focused on in September and October are less subtle. They just might use a slight, slight depression or slight high figure on a ridge to get from bed to food. And so I'll set up on that. Um, and, you know, sometimes they don't use them because they're just not, maybe in between the bedding area and the feeding area, there isn't really anything that funnels them down um, dramatically. And they might not use what you think they're going to. Um, and then you adjust. And maybe they don't use the same feature every day, too. Um, so I mostly try, try to get in between bedding and feed. And there might be something in between there that's going to help uh be narrowed down where they're going to walk, but a lot of times there isn't. And I kind of start to hunt the pinch points and topography a lot more during the rut. Yeah, that makes so. sense. That makes sense. It seems, you know, seems very in line with, you know, what a lot of us are dealing with in other places too. Um, and actually one other thing, Mark, that I like to do with trail cameras uh, to determine, you know, where I'm going to hunt in relation to bed and food. Um, say you have a bedding area uh, to the south and feeding to the north, what I'll do if I think I can do without putting a lot of pressure on the deer or the buck that I'm hunting is I'll run cameras kind of in a line from the east to the west to determine what trail or what path he's actually taking to get to that feeding area. If there isn't something that's, you know, very obvious um, and going to dramatically um, pinch his movement or funnel his movement. So that I've used that in the past a lot, and that has been a really critical tool. But you have to be careful with it because you don't want to get too close to the bed and bump him or put too much pressure in an area where he's not accustomed to um, encountering human center, human activity. But that that's a really good tool that I use a lot. And uh, it takes a 
fair amount of cameras, but if you can do that, you can really figure out exactly how it's how he's traveling um, within this core area to get between bed and food. I like that. That's something I've always thought about doing and wanted to do and just never put the time and energy and, and invested all my trail camera resources into, you know, really hammering one area like that. But it makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. It makes it makes all the sense in the world to try something like that, to narrow it all down. Yeah, if you want to hunt, you know, if you're focused on one specific buck, then that can be a great tool. Obviously, you don't want to waste all your trail camera resources in one area if you're not really dead set on one deer. But a lot of times I'll get one deer in my head and that's kind of it for me. So I'm after him. So I'll just do everything I can to figure out exactly what he's doing. And the one thing I found with that too is a lot of the times a different buck will use kind of the same trail, but your buck say you kill that buck or he gets killed or he moves off or dies the next year, you know, years down the road. Um, what you found from kind of walking back those cameras a little bit, you can use to hunt a different deer. And I sometimes won't even, if I'm hunting the same area that I've hunted before and had experience, I won't need to do that anymore. I'll just put one camera where I was getting them, the other buck, and then you know, more often than not, that a different buck is using the same terrain feature, um, as subtle as it may be, to get from bed to food. So, so true. yeah, I'm, I'm big on that. Yeah, Let's, you know, those those bucks are using an area for a reason, so it makes sense that another buck will find that yeah. same reason and, and take advantage of it. All right, now before we continue on with another question for Brett, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, Lacrosse Boots. And I'm pretty excited that we've been able to work with Lacrosse because I've got a serious history with them. I remember first seeing knee-high rubber lacrosse boots up at our northern Michigan deer camp when my Uncle Bill started wearing them probably about 15 years ago. And after hearing him rave about them, I had to make the switch. And I've been wearing lacrosse ever since. And I imagine over the 118 years that lacrosse has been making boots, there have been a lot of other guys and girls who developed a history like this. And one such hunter who has, and someone who I think many of you are probably familiar with, is David Blanton, host of Realtree Outdoors and the Monster Bucks video series. I've been wearing lacrosse boots for about 12 years now, to be honest with you. Uh, the the, the the name lacrosse just goes hand in hand with serious bow hunting. What what drew me to lacrosse in the beginning were their their knee high rubber boots. Just they were just incredible. The old Alpha and Alpha Burleys. Those were just fantastic rubber boots for for bow hunting from a scent control standpoint. So that's really what brought me to to lacrosse. And then of course in the last few years I've been using uh, airheads which are incredible, they're lightweight, they feel great. Uh, they're, 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 just, they're just a great hunting boot. So if you're looking to build a history of your own with a new pair of hunting boots, check out lacrosse at lacrossefootwear.com. And now, back to the show. What, what's the rut look like in the Northeast? I mean, with these low numbers, are, are the bucks doing a lot of cruising? The rut is a funny thing up here. Um, and the biggest reason I think it's a funny thing is because a lot of our gun seasons come in right around the 1st of November. Our muzzleloader season starts November 1st, around there at least, within a couple of days. Um, goes for 11 days, and then our firearm season starts. So we have a month solid of November gun hunting. Yikes. And that really, really, really impacts the rut. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. I was just saying that, that okay, sounds sorry. rough. <laughs> um, yeah, so that really suppresses the rut, and it really kind of changes um, what you see, whereas 
you know, if you're hunting an area that doesn't have a lot of pressure, you're going to see more of a rut, I think. But most of our rut activity is uh, suppressed to after dark, in my opinion. I mean, I do see some of it, but it's nothing like you'd expect. Um, and the other thing is, if you get, you know, one hot doe that's half a mile away, um, you're not going to see anything <laughs> at all. It's not like we don't have a bunch of deer. It's not like we can sit on, you know, area with a bunch of does there might be one or two does in an area so and if we're not right there then we're not going to see anything so the rut can be really slow um obviously they're white tails and they they do walk and travel a lot of ground during the rut um so yeah if you put in your time and you're sitting in the right area you can uh, have some success but i've had especially for bow hunting the rut a lot of times guys are gun hunting the rut and they're still hunting or tracking or doing something like that and they're getting into deer and they're following tracks so they can be pretty effective but uh, i typically don't gun hunt i haven't shot a buck with a gun and i think since 2008 so i'm typically bow hunting and obviously that doesn't really work for me if i'm trying to walk around and track deer with a bow so um, it can be pretty tough um some of the states like massachusetts um i know they see a lot better rut activity because their gun season start usually till December first, uh, so you'll see a lot more activity there. But from what I do see, um, it's just like anywhere else. I'm hunting just topography mostly or, or pinch points um, close to where I know there's a good buck, and uh, I could just be like a bench on a ridge or um, maybe just a pinch point between a cattail swamp and a pond or like a cut or something like that so it's pretty typical i'd say of anywhere else the only, only thing is it's just tough because you have a lot of gun pressure and that kind of makes makes everything go out the window that you knew before november 1st so yeah. that can be definitely a challenge and that's a lot of times that's why i do a lot of my out-of-state hunting during the rut so i'm trying to kill a good buck in september and october um at home and then usually during the rut i leave and go barn somewhere else yeah, so that that's a perfect segue to the next thing we want to talk to you about, Brett, which is those traveling hunts that I know you do. Um, can you share with us, I, I, th- I was going to ask you why you're doing that, but I think it's kind of obvious now, as you just mentioned, some of the challenges during the rut there in, in uh, New Hampshire. So when it comes to heading to these other states, what, you know, what is the biggest thing that you've learned now that you've been doing this for some period of time? You know, what's the biggest thing that you're able to do now that's making you successful on these out-of-state hunts that maybe when you first started you struggled with? Um, when I first started, I just was excited to hunt outside of New England to see deer. I think that's what a lot of guys that leave New England are excited to do. They just want to see deer, and they're excited because they get three or four doe tags. And <laughs> It's funny because um, that's kind of how it was, is and how it was for me. Um, and I, so basically I just kind of looked for areas with a lot of deer, you know, a target rich environment. Um, and so that led me to places like Maryland or New York state or something like that, uh, or one of those places. Um, but I kind of shifted from that, um, I guess mindset when I wanted to hunt mature deer. So I've just done a lot of research online and, um, did a lot of reading and talked to a lot of people and tried to identify some areas that have a, you know, higher, quality of the deer, um, higher percentage of mature bucks, good age structure, and then obviously areas with some better genetics. And that's kind of led me to Ohio and some of the other places that I hunt. Uh, this year I'm hunting Iowa. So um, I guess that's how I've 
done that, but I mean, I look at anything, you know, a lot of the available resources that's available to anybody, like Boone and Crockett Map or um, Pope and Young Records or anything like that, um, or just, you know, word of mouth. A lot of times you can find out about a really good overlooked area just by talking to a local or calling a um, conservation or fishing game, as we call it, office and talking to someone there. Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges I think a lot of people have, um, or maybe one of these things that a lot of people are intimidated by when they live somewhere far away from some of these uh, more renowned deer states is just figuring out, you know, where to hunt. How do I get somewhere to hunt? Um, we've talked about this sometimes in the podcast ourselves, but I'd be curious to hear from your standpoint, Brett, how have you been able to find places to hunt, you know, specifically getting a farm or somewhere to hunt, or are you just targeting public land? How are you getting that spot? Yeah, I think there's probably three avenues I use. First is public land, um, but I'm very, very selective if I'm going to travel to public land. I want to make sure that I know at least maybe some first-hand knowledge of how it lays and, you know, what goes on there. Um, so I'm looking for areas that are, not, that are overlooked, overlooked public land or areas that don't get a lot of pressure. Uh, I've kind of found that out west in Montana um, when we go to hunt whitetails because most everybody's focused on mule deer and elk that time of year. And we find that we don't really see any bow hunters on public land. Um, so I guess for public land, that's what I look for. Then um, the other thing is just to network and really just talk to as many people as you can or maybe acquaintances or friends, family, any, anybody that knows someone in an area that you're interested in hunting, just try to talk to them and ask them. And, you know, you, a lot of times you won't come up with anything, but one of those times you might um, come up with something really good. The farm I'm actually going hunting Iowa this year Um I got permission on because of a friendship in New Hampshire. Um, so that was kind of a long shot that I'd ever find a place to hunt in Iowa from uh, <laughs> yeah. just a relationship I had in New Hampshire, but it did work out and it's, it turns out it's a really good farm and I'm excited to go hunt it. Um, so I think, you know, that it doesn't happen all the time that you're going to be able to network with someone that's going to get you a great place to hunt, but it is worth exploring and just talking to people. Um, the one thing I would, I guess, be aware of is a lot of times when you're doing that, you're talking to non-hunters and they can, they don't have a very accurate, I guess, perception or account of how that property that you might be talking, talking about hunting actually is. So it might be really not a great property. It might be way better than they think. So just try to, you know, use your best judgment and, and, uh, gather as much information as you can and keep in mind who you're talking to. If you're talking to someone that hunts mature bucks every year, then yeah, you can pretty much take what they say is, you know, truth. But if you're talking to someone that just doesn't hunt, they're not going to be able to tell you that, yeah, I mean, I saw a bunch of five-year-old bucks last year. They just might say, oh, I see deer all the time. Well, that could mean anything. So yeah. I think you have to kind of be careful on that one. You don't want to go into something and waste a bunch of time. Um, but other than that, I also, I, the farm that I, or the farms I hunt in Ohio, I'm leasing. And that can even be a huge challenge to find a place to lease out there. And um, I kind of got into that situation just with developing relationships with landowners um, over the years from going out and uh, hunting some public and talking to people. And um, it took a while, but I finally have some pretty good places to hunt out there. Um, so I, did, I guess just be as proactive as you can talk to as many people as you can just read as much as you can online a lot of people think that everything online is well not everything online but there's a lot of misinformation online and there probably is but there's a lot of good information too 
And uh, you can do a lot of research and figure out a lot just by, you know, a Google search or um, getting on some of the forums like Archery Talk, anything like that. So I think you have to use a combination of everything. And a lot of the times you're not going to end up with much, but one or two good spots is all you need. Yeah. So, so when you do have a good spot or two, you know, are you scouting or able to manage these properties in any way at all, given the distance, or are you basically getting a property and then doing some digital work and then just heading into hunt? Uh, I do both. Uh, it depends, of course, how close and how easily I can get there. Um, when I, with the farm I'm hunting in Iowa, I've been to a couple times before um, I was there this summer, so I was able to do a little bit on it. And I have a couple friends that. Uh, Midwest White Winter really helped me out with that too, running some cameras and doing a little bit of work on it. So I'm fortunate in that regard on that particular property. But when we go and hunt out west, um, we're hunting public land and we're just kind of going in blind the first year. And you got to start somewhere. And a lot of the properties you might not do very well in the first year, but man, you found out that there's some good bucks in the area. So you try to start to put it together and learn more and more um, over the years and try to kind of develop a plan to hunt a specific area. And it helps if you're going back during the same time period every year. Like when we hunt out west, we usually go on the first part of September. So we're pretty familiar with what the deer are doing in, in that particular time period. So we can kind of build on last year's intel and what we saw and um, try to learn more about the property and hopefully it leads to our success out there. Um, as far as traveling and getting properties ready, the farms are at least in Ohio. Um, yeah, we do travel out there a good amount over the summer and um run cameras, do some shed hunting and some scouting in the off season. And uh, actually the last couple of years have been putting in food plots that have been working out for us pretty well. Um, so that that takes a big time commitment though and I'm driving actually twelve hours to get to Ohio every time and sometimes it's awful to do but I'll leave on a Friday night after work, drive through the night, get to Ohio on you know at four o'clock on Saturday morning and I'm go, go, go for twelve hours while I still have light to get stuff done and then wake up the next morning on Sunday, get you know, put the finishes finishing touches on what I started on Saturday and then we're back in the truck for another twelve hours to get back to work on Monday. Um, so it's it's not always fun and it's not <laughs> yeah. enjoyable but um, you know, it, to me it's worth it in the end when it all comes together and I'm able to harvest a mature buck out there. So um, it's not for everybody and it does take, you know, a little bit of of a budget to set aside specifically for that and gas money and for a lease and all that stuff and um, time away from family. But uh, if you want to do it, it's possible. So. so so that brings up another question then, which we kind of alluded to towards the very beginning of our conversation, which is, you know, picking your times. You know, when do you really want, when do you invest all that time to go down there and hunt? Um, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, both in my situation and yours, something happened, you know, weather-wise that triggered us to say, hey, we have to be down there, we have to be there now, and you went barreling down there 12 hours, and I went barreling down there five hours to make it happen. What are the factors or different conditions or whatever it might be that helps you choose when to go and actually go on one of these hunts that are, you know, a significant time and and money and energy investment? Yeah, most of the time I'm just like you or or a lot of the guys I'm looking for a cold front uh, or just a significant drop in temperature. Um, and that's really all I'm looking for early season. Uh, so, you know, any time where, for example, that when we talked about last year, I think the first uh, Ohio, I think opened on the 27th maybe last year, if I remember correctly. And 
for that whole week, we had temps like near 80. And one of my buddies actually went out and hunted opening weekend on the farm, and he didn't see anything. And we had great trail camera intel, too, that there was a lot of mature bucks on our farms and using our food plots. And he sat there for a couple nights, and he didn't see anything at all. It was just too hot, and they weren't moving. But I watched the, the weather and saw that we had like a 15, I think it went down to like the low 50s or something like that for a high um, on that next weekend. And... I looked at the trail camera information that he had got, and any time those deer or the temperature dropped, or I think it was below like 60 degrees there on those food plots, um, you know, without fail. And so I knew that I had to be out there, and with those hot, warm temperatures all week, um, and that cold front pushing, and I just we just figured for sure they'd be on their feet during daylight, and uh, we were right. So I'm looking for a cold front uh, during the rut. I obviously like the that's Sometimes I'll leave for a week, week and a half, or two weeks. So that's a little bit tougher to play the front. Um, I might try to sneak out a little early um, from work, a couple of days if I can, if I know it's going to be really good, like the early part of November, if I see some cold weather moving in. But uh, mostly I'm playing the dates and trying to hunt. Be in the stand, I, I usually like the, like the 4th through the 11th or 12th. That's my favorite time period that I've had the most success. Um, so I'll, I'll tentatively try to get out during the rut during that time period, but man, if there's a crazy cold front coming in on Halloween, I might try to cut out early and, and add more time to the front end of my vacation. Um, or you know, the other way around, if it's really hot, I'm looking at the forecast for November 34th and 5th, and it's supposed to be like 70 degrees. Well, I just might stay at work and try to get some more stuff done around the house and then um, leave when it when the temperature is going to change but if everything's equal it's you know seasonable temperatures and um, average highs and lows i'll probably i'm more focused on the date than the weather but i'd say definitely early season um, is weather and late season as well although i haven't had as much success um late season so you know, that that all seems right in line with some of the same things that i've seen on my own hunts when i'm traveling out of state that you know, early season, sometime in October, it's really trying to key in on that weather. And then once the rut hits, you know, as you mentioned, assuming all things are equal, just play the dates and those, that time frame that you mentioned, November 4th, 12th, it's, it's hard to beat that. That's for sure. Yeah. That's, I think pretty much if you bank on that, you're going to have some pretty good success. And obviously you could, the weather can change and you might take those dates off and it gets really hot and there's not much going on that's just kind of how it goes we don't always get it right every time so yeah, yeah. But we do the best that we can that's the truth so you mentioned that you're hunting iowa this year during the rut it sounds like are you also going to be trying to hit ohio or are you doing both or are you just just ohio? that's yeah yeah my plan is to well i don't know yet i was hoping to get a buck down a couple weekends ago for the weekend in ohio so i wouldn't worry about ohio but um that didn't happen i kind of messed up and hunted, a, hunted the wrong stand and didn't go with my gut but, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to, if I don't have one down, I'm also considering heading to Ohio this weekend as well. But um, it, let's say I, I don't kill a good buck before the run. I'm probably going to swing through Ohio on my way to Iowa. It's kind of on the way. Um, and I think Iowa is like a 22-hour drive, so we get to break it up wow. a little bit. Um, yeah. So we get to break it up. I'm probably going to swing into the farm and set the cameras and see if there's you know, what's going on and talk to the guys I know in that area and see if the rut's cranking. And I might hunt for a day or two, day or two if it's really going good and I think I have a pretty good chance of killing. If not, I'll just 
keep on rolling through and head to Iowa. And maybe if I kill in Iowa early or, you know, whatever, I might have time on the way back to, to Ohio. So yeah, wow. that's the plan at least. Well, uh, well, yep. Dan, I don't think you can ever complain about having to drive an hour to hunt your Iowa property again after hearing that Brett's <laughs> driving 22. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So, uh, hey, how many kids do you have? <laughs> yeah, zero, and I'm sure you probably figured that. Oh, okay. Okay. Never mind. Yeah, next, yeah I'm sure that's, that's going to be a limiting factor, I'm sure. <laughs> I am married, and obviously that limits my time a little more than um, – or more so than it used to when I wasn't married, and I'm sure kids will do that as well. But for now, I can I can get away with it, so I'm going to while I still can. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, we'll see what happens. I'll play it by ear when that, that chapter <laughs> of my life comes in. You ain't going to play you know, it by ear. If I ear. can't do it anymore, I can't do it. <laughs> You're going to listen to what your wife tells you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're keep her happy. Yeah, these are, these are lessons that people like you and me, Brett, we need to learn from Dan. He's He's uh, been there, seen that, and... Dealing with the consequences now, I guess. <laughs> well, one of the biggest things, though, it kind of plays in your hand. If you, I always tell my wife, like, you know, if it's warm out, I won't be in the woods. I'm not going to be going there. I'll be home. Because so, I just don't hunt if the conditions are ideal. So, really, a lot of times I'm not hunting. So, I try to spend as much time at home get taking care of things or at work or whatever well I can when it's the conditions are less favorable. But I tell them if it's going to be cold, I'm I'm headed out. So. <laughs> yep, it's all about that timing. So uh, speaking of timing, we are coming up on time here with the show. Um, but before we wrap up, Dan, do you have a final question that's been bugging you that you want to ask Brett, or are we good? No, we're good. Good luck this uh, this year, Brett, and uh, I hope you lay down uh, one in every state. Yeah, I hope so too. But <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If I can get one done, I'll be happy. Good luck <laughs> to you guys too. I know you guys have some pretty big plans and some pretty big deer to hunt. So it's exciting to follow you guys and see how you do. Thank you, Brett. We appreciate it. And uh, when you do tag your buck in Iowa or Ohio, definitely let us know. We'll, we'll like to share the, the success that you're having with the rest of our listeners too. Definitely. All right, Brett. Well, we'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Okay, you too. All right, thanks, thanks a lot. All right, well, there you have it, another Wired Hunt podcast in the books. But before we go, I do have a couple quick favors to ask. As usual, if you have 30 seconds, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review for the Wired Hunt podcast and our new show, Whitetail Q&A. It is a huge help, and it helps us keep this show afloat, so thank you in advance for doing that. Secondly, we do want to thank our partners who have helped to make sure that the Wired Hunt podcast can stay on the air. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And with that all said, good luck on your upcoming hunts, shoot straight, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.